Welcome to the Solid Verbal. The Solid Verbal. Come after me! I'm a man! I'm 40! I've heard so many players say, well, I want to be happy. You want to be happy for a day? Eat a steak. It's that woo woo! And now, Dan and Ty. Welcome back to the Solid Verbal, boys and girls. My name is Ty Hildebrandt. Joining me from way over there in beautiful and sunny in Southern California, braving out the pandemic in that California sun, my man Dan Rubenstein. Sir, how are you? Ty, it's raining at the moment, but spirits remain sunny inside my heart and soul because, one, I'm connected with you to talk about another weird fun interesting large game from college football lore or whatever word i'm looking for and two i'm i'm okay you know i can't complain this is it's a strange time but i'm happy to be doing this and i have a lot of thoughts not just about the 2003 bcs championship game between miami and ohio state but just the 2002 season in general the context of what was going on during the college football season and the world at large and I got to tell you, Ty, before you start plugging away at various places that you can find us doing other things, the tease here is I was furious <laughs> watching <laughs> this game, going back on YouTube and rewatching this game because everybody remembers the game basically for, I guess, two reasons because of something really, really bad if you just like the human body and two Really, really bad if you don't like to see controversy and a huge college football game. But in fact, everything about this game and season was a lot larger than that. And I am very excited, Ty, to get into it with uh, with you. All right. Well, we'll get to Dan's Furious Bradley in just a moment. (laughs) But before we go any further, don't forget to follow us out there on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We started doing some video stuff. We're going to continue doing some video stuff. Obviously, those social media channels is where you can find out about it first. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to participate in a conversation with other verballers, you can do so at solidverbal.reddit.com, the subreddit commandeered by our good friend Peter Hoffman, who does such a good job keeping that conversation going. As Dan said, today we are hopping in the DeLorean. (laughs) setting the date for January 3rd, 2003. It was the 2003 Tostitos Fiesta Bowl. It doubled as the BCS National Championship game between Miami and Ohio State. Interestingly enough, January 3rd was a Friday in 2003, Dan. I like that. It's a date night college football tie. A little after New Year's, maybe the hangovers have worn off and you get some takeout. You, you grab some beers and you watch the national championship on a Friday night. I don't hate it. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be as good for ratings as a Monday night game. But I, I sort of like that. Where were you in life <laughs> on January 3rd, 2003? So I would have been in the middle of my sophomore year of college. And more specifically, geographically, I was on winter break and watching this game from the bedroom of an ex-girlfriend who was, I don't oh. think was in the room. I don't think she was even in the room. I don't think she cared about uh, oh. Big East football. <laughs> um, but it was on one of those small combo TV VCRs. So this oh, is wow. squarely for everybody pretty much pre-HD, but especially for me. Yeah, that's that four by three magic right there. Oh, yeah. I was watching this game 
in my friend Dave's basement. We called it the Dave Cave at the time. It was beautiful. <laughs> Shout out Dave Cave. Shout out Dave Cave. I had a pool table, I had a poker table. I was in the middle of my junior year up at Penn State. Everyone was home on break. And I remember watching this game like you. I, I was a huge college football fan, right? You got to be to do a show like this for as long as we have. But it was a formative moment for me when Willis McGahee got hurt. Yeah. We've had some tough, major televised injuries. And that was one of the first I could remember. Obviously, we had the Louisville basketball one a few years ago. I remember one at USC, Ryan Podrell and an ankle. But on a stage like this, and you know, going back, I, I was not old enough for Joe Theismann in the 80s. But on a stage like this, with the replays that were shown, and we'll get to this when we get to the fourth quarter, that's a rough television tie. And thank really God it wasn't HD. <laughs> thank God. Rough television. It yeah. felt like it was CGI and yeah. not real life. I remember that injury 17 mm. years later, like it was yesterday. Um, and it had an impact on me. It really did. It was sort of like the first time I, I feel like I had seen an injury that was quite as gruesome as that. And yeah. it just stuck with me, not to mention all the buildup to this game and Miami entering this game as this gorilla and and Ohio State being a really good team. Um and there was all this pomp and circumstance around this football game, but that that McGahee injury, we'll get into, as you said, the fourth quarter here momentarily and talk a little bit more about it. It was called by Keith Jackson, the legend, mm -hmm. and Dan Fouts as the color commentator. Lynn Swan and Todd Harris down on the sidelines also had John Saunders and Terry Bowden working as studio hosts in this football game, Dan. An all-Pacific Northwest booth. Keith Jackson, Wazoo, Dan Fouts, Oregon. I like that. I didn't even realize that until just now. And pregame was a little dated. Um, we can get into the broadcast and what what we sort of gleaned from everything during the game. But uh, I think it was a Cal Ripken Jr. coin toss. <laughs> I think Cal Ripken, I don't know what his stats were at this time, but it feels like he was still active. I could not, I could not tell you when Cal Ripken retired, Ty. You could have told me 2006. You could tell me 2014. I have no He would clue. still start for the Orioles. Let's be honest. Are they bad? Okay. Yeah. Um, before we get into the game itself and the, the pregame, and I'm sure there's terrible music, going into this game, these two programs are at two very different points, even though they're both undefeated and uh, the, the clear choice for this national championship game. Ohio State is sort of an upstart. The John Cooper era was fine for a long stretch, but he goes 2-10-1 against Gary Moeller, Lloyd Carr, Michigan. And Miami is the defending national champion. You mentioned them, the, the big gorilla in the stadium. And they just run away from Nebraska the year before, a Nebraska team that let's be honest, should not have even been in the game. No, Nobody looks back and says, yeah, Nebraska was the right selection there. No, they, they shouldn't have been in the game, and they played like it against Miami. Miami just trounced them. And then throughout the year, Miami had a couple close calls. Pitt, Florida State, that was a wide left game for Miami in that win. And uh, Ohio State is sort of eking by teams as they learn to win. It's sort of a crawl before you walk, walk before you run, and they're just learning to win, but they're pulling out close ones. You have the Holy Buckeye game against uh, Purdue to Michael Jenkins, a fourth down crazy pass from Craig Krenzel to Michael Jenkins. And I think there were a couple. Wisconsin was a close one. They just, they have this very, uh, 
I want to say LRO season. That's how I would have described well, this this team and this program going into the game if we had a show back then. Four, it's fair. Four games in the 2002 regular season where Ohio State won and did not score 20 points. 19 Ooh. to 14 at Wisconsin, 13 to 7 at home over Penn State, mm-hmm. 10 to 6 in a bit of a miracle game on the road in West Lafayette over Purdue, yeah. and 14 to 9 at home in the game over the Michigan Wolverines. So, you know, one thing that came to mind for me as I did the research here was like, can you imagine a situation in which Ohio State would win four games and not score 20 points in 2020? Like, I can't, that's incomprehensible to no. me, given where we're at in college football right now. There were a lot of things, by the way, that I saw in this game that I can't fathom being part of the current day and age. But not scoring more than 20 points and still winning seemed like, whoa, that's that's a different era altogether. Yeah, we've seen close calls. We've seen teams that generally generate a lot of points and go on to this caliber a season, have those down games where they win 17-14 or 10-12 or obviously famously 9-6. But four times is a lot of times to eke it out against not great competition that year in the Big Ten. There was certainly talent if you look around the conference, Ohio State didn't have electric players on offense, perhaps outside of Maurice Claret. Craig Krenzel wasn't the reason Ohio State was winning. Um, it was, you know, Chris Gamble was probably a, a big reason because he was going both ways, but this was not a an Ohio State team with the type of talent. And I'm sure you have who went on to the NFL in this game right in front yeah, of you. But yeah. this was not this was not an offense that led the way for Ohio State. You look at the Big Ten that year, and you know huge names. Larry Johnson at Penn State led the way for the Nittany Lions. Uh, Charles Rogers was you know, borderline unguardable wow. for Michigan State. He was yeah, incredible at Michigan State, yeah. Brad Banks to, to Dallas Clark at Iowa. Anthony Davis at, uh, at Wisconsin. They're you know, big names, big yardage, big points. And Ohio State players, even though Maurice Claret was both really, really good, he was also a workhorse. He wasn't a home run hitter every week, but even when he wasn't, he was churning out first downs and helping to pace this offense. And if not for Maurice Claret, they definitely lose at least one game. Oh, for sure. And we'll get into Claret here. Yeah. As we talk about this specific game. As you said, though, there was a ton of talent on the field for this particular game. And I got this from the Columbus Post Dispatch. Right. 43 starters that night, and you double count Chris Gamble, obviously, because he played both ways. 37 of them were chosen in some NFL draft, not all the same one, but 86% chosen in the NFL draft. And a bunch of backups in this football game were also chosen. I think 100 people participated in this football game. Mm -hmm. 58 of them played in at least one NFL game, and 18 of them went on to be first-round draft picks. So, you know, Will Smith, Chris Gamble, Michael Jenkins, A.J. Hawk, and Bobby Carpenter were young, but on those teams, yeah, as well as Nick Mangold, who had a cup of coffee in this football game uh, along the offensive line. But everyone knows about Miami when they think about talent in this day and age. Andre Johnson, Sean Taylor, Kellen Winslow, Jonathan Vilma, Vince Wilfork, who's a monster college. By the way, Vince Wilfork. monster in this game is a rotation player doesn't yeah. start the best modern nose tackle in football 
doesn't even start in this game. And he's young. I don't think he's a freshman this year. He's early on in his Miami career, but he's inserted early on and makes like three enormous plays. You're like, oh, it's just a rotation nose tackle for Miami. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Must be and nice. And also uh, Entrell Roll. Yeah, Antrell Roll. I mean, that's secondary in general. Kelly Jennings, Antrell Roll, and Sean Taylor in the Miami secondary. Throwing into that, even if you're more talented and more accomplished than Craig Krenzel, not super fun sounding, Ty. No, no, no. No. Um, Miami came into this game, though, in a much different situation. They were defending national champions, right, Dan? Yes. They're defending national champs and... For, by and large, and I mentioned this, they they kill a lot of teams. They they beat up on Virginia Tech. That's their final game of the season. I think they dropped 50 or 60 points and just demolish them. Willis McGahee starting in the backfield. Ken Dorsey. By the way, great Tom Hammond game because I think oh. Ken Dorsey was a double major and Craig Krenzel was molecular biology. So He would have brought up <laughs> that molecular biology major and GPA Todd yeah. Harris during this game and during the broadcast had a little mm-hmm. quip, a little quip about this that was very Hammond-esque, but he was just a sideline reporter at the time. Right. Hammond would have brought that up, <laughs> double OT, game on the line. Of course. That's when he would have brought that up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was the, the cast of characters. This, the cast of characters in this game was exceptional. The broadcast, I, I think, got started out with Limp. Biscuits rolling, rolling, yep, rolling. Yep. You had a wonderful highlight package of two very successful seasons by Miami and Ohio State laid down on a comfy bed of rolling by Limp Biscuit. Yeah. So there was there was suitable hype. There was, you know, obviously when you have Keith Jackson, Dan Fouts in this era in the booth, that's a big deal. No, no controversy going into this game. It wasn't the the following year, I believe, when Auburn goes undefeated and is left out. It was Miami and Ohio State both undefeated. Iowa finishes eleven and one. That's the Brad Banks team. Uh, they end up losing to USC in the Orange Bowl. USC has Carson Palmer, who wins the Heisman. David Green is in one of his eleven seasons for Georgia. Uh, <laughs> Darren Sproles completely wrecking shop for Kansas State. They finish in the top 10. Jason Gesser in Wazoo. Chris Sims in Texas. I mentioned Larry Johnson in Penn State. Notre Dame wins 10 games this season, Ty. They won 10 games and then got destroyed by Phillip Rivers, I want to say, in NC State in the Gator Bowl. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, that's It was a good year, actually, for quarterbacks. Um, the Oregon team, that I want to say they went 6-6, six and 7-5, six, and five, something like that. They end up... In the Seattle Bowl tie, I'm okay. sure you have a lot of precious Seattle Bowl memories. We all we all remember our first Seattle Bowl. They got beaten pretty handily by Wake Forest in the the Seattle Bowl. They lost, God, they lost comfortably. I think to Oregon State in the Civil War. This was it was a Jason Fife taking over for Joey Harrington year. And outside wow. Ontario Smith, Mister Wizenator himself was the highlight of this Oregon team. But not a fun year to be a Duck fan. Specifically with regard to this football game, Miami and Ohio State descended upon Sun Devil Stadium for the Fiesta Bowl at the time. This was Mm -hmm. long before we had the stadium in Glendale. And they were competing for the Circuit City BCS Trophy, Daniel. Hell yeah. Circuit City. Hell yeah. We're service to state of the art. We also had a PlayStation 2 team comparison graphic. Mm Mm-hmm. That Dan Fouts was happy to commentate over. Did you ever see Will Ferrell's Dan Fouts? 
Did Will you Ferrell did Will- Dan Fouts? Will Ferrell did Dan Fouts, and it's it's incredible. It's he's just he plays Dan Fouts as if Dan Fouts is just coasting. Just he's like, that's right, man. Yeah, was this, yeah. it's was this the skit where he talked about like the team that has the most points is going to win the yeah, game? Yeah, I think so. I think that so. One, okay. It was just the Maybe most see that. generic by the book. Yeah, it was great. So looking back now, just from a big picture 2020 perspective, yeah, what are some of your observations of not not Miami and Ohio State and the way this game shook out, but Mm -hmm. just the game of football. So this is right ahead of the sort of beginning of the mainstream spread revolution, what Urban Meyer is doing at Utah. Uh, We have some early air raidiness with Cliff Kingsbury as the quarterback. He, he, I think, completes almost 500 passes and second place was like 350. So we're seeing the slow, you're seeing, you know, the, the percolation, some, some sizzling bubbles of modern offense, you know, Rex Grossman at Florida, they're opening things up, obviously still in the fun and gun. This is, I think right ahead of the Ron Zook era, um, Timmy Chang and Hawaii are throwing the ball all around. So there is at least, there are early bubbles of modernization, but what Ohio state does to get here is defense and ball control and trying to not turn the ball over. And what Miami does to get here is relying on its incredible stable of talent. And it worked for both of them getting here, but ultimately what made me furious was probably the word discipline or lack thereof when you actually watch the game. I was blown away by how big the players were. It feels like the players were bigger. (laughs) Or at least wearing bigger pads, yeah. The pads were huge. The pads made them all look squared off like they were Abrams tanks. It was right. ridiculous. But it maybe because it was pre-spread era and defensive players didn't need to be as versatile and agile, mm-hmm. maybe they could be bigger. I don't know, but it it felt like these guys were bigger. There was certainly no targeting. But that being said, um, the thing that really stood out was just how enormous Everyone look. Matt Wilhelm for Ohio Wilhelm. State looked like he looked like a perfect sphere with all the padding he had. He had the <laughs> neck roll, yeah. gigantic shoulder pads. It's a bunch of Michelin men out there. I mean, you mentioned PS2 tie. If you remember, was it NFL Game Day? Was that one of the the big? Uh, that was NFL Game Day. Was the game where you could just loft it up. Right, but if you remember what the players in that game looked like, they looked like tanks. They were all squared yeah. off, and it wasn't unrealistic. That was just the look. This was back before Jim Tressel was gray. It was, what, his second year at Ohio State? Second year for both head coaches. Much like the last game we did, actually. Yeah. Um, Had a little bit of a Ned Flanders feel to him, didn't he? <laughs> I don't think it was just limited to this he game time. I mean, he didn't have the mustache, but he had the sweater. He had the coiffed hair, sort of didn't a have choir glasses. boy air about him. Didn't have yeah. glasses. That's true. Right. Oh, but yeah, very 100%. proper on the sidelines and had led a very successful campaign to that point. What was your take on this football game, Dan? How do you feel watching this after all these years? I, I actually was really entertained, even though it made me furious and there were things that I didn't like about it. Um the Craig Krenzel thing annoyed me. The 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 fact that uh, the fact that I had to sit through a national championship game watching Craig Krenzel attempt to run an offense was rough. Craig Krenzel led the team in rushing. He had 81 yards. He had more rushing yardage than Maurice Claret. 
I kept thinking when watching the Ohio State offense that Craig Krenzel looks like what I would look like if you were like to put me in charge of a Chili's without any notice. <laughs> put me in charge of a Jamba Juice where it's just like, I don't know where the strawberries are. I don't know where you plug in the blenders. I'm going to smash all these peaches and kiwis and put them in a cup. I understand that's not what a smoothie's supposed to look like, but I'm just doing what I can. That's what the Craig Krenzel experience felt like to me. And but he, I'm, so he was nine for, no, seven for 21. Okay. And Not two great. interceptions. Not great as a thrower, but had 81 yards on the ground and two touchdowns. And to his credit, he had some some bigger moments in this game. It wasn't flawless by any stretch, but right. there were some big moments. We talk about often on the show how guys win moments. Krenzel won some moments in this game. Claret won some moments in this game. So Ohio State stays in the game early without being able to do anything on offense because early on, Will Smith might be the best player on the field. He's unblockable. He's getting to Ken Dorsey, and the the Miami offensive rhythm is totally off. He connects a little bit with Andre Johnson, um, who, by the way, Andre Johnson, a name maybe lost to time because of the way his NFL career sort of ended pretty quickly. Um, But Andre Johnson and I think it was Larry Fitzgerald played in the same game in the season, as did uh, Andre Johnson and Anquan Bolden for the Florida State game. He was unguardable in this game, and I'm sure he was you unguardable all season long. And yeah, you couldn't you couldn't guard Andre Johnson. He was six, I think they said six three, two fifteen, two twenty. Yes. Maybe not totally quite as heavy, but just unguardable in college. Unguardable. And I thought Ohio State largely did a really good job of taking away the sidelines. And this is Mark D'Antonio calling the Ohio State defense. They completely stuff. Willis McGahee and the Miami running game, which really did pace them as good as Ken Dorsey was. He was what I think would become to come to be known as a game manager where it's just like, get it to Kellen Winslow, get it to Andre Johnson. Just don't make mistakes and let Willis McGahee pace things. And I don't know if you went back and watched any of Willis McGahee from 2002 deceptive speed and would have thrived if he had come along really in any era. But if he had played for a shotgun power running team in like 2014, he would have yeah. put up 2,300 yards. He was he, he was a downhill runner, and he was bigger than I remember. Cut and go, cut and go. He was great at that. Yeah, he was he was much bigger than I remember. So was Claret. Claret was a big kid. Yeah. Oh, for and, sure. Um, you know the shoulder pads made him look bigger, but he he was a big boy and had some moments in this game. Um, the final score here was. 31 to 24 went to double overtime. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie and say that it was an exciting first, maybe three quarters of this game. It was a lot of defense and a lot of turnovers. We had seven total turnovers (laughs) in this game, five by Miami. Perhaps that's why they lost two by Ohio state. The other thing that I did want to call out, Dan, you mentioned Craig Krenzel, uh, Ken Dorsey was 38 and one going into this football game. Oh, they they really hammered that point in. Yeah. Hammered that home. And I remember watching this game at the time thinking, wow, Ken Dorsey's really underrated. Like he's not getting the kind of love he deserves from NFL scouts because he's been so good in college. And this is somebody who's going to be a surefire pro for a long, long time. He wasn't. Um, Turns out the scouts were right about Ken Dorsey. And if you watch the first quarter of this game, as Mm -hmm. I did before one of our Instagram live feeds, you came away pretty impressed with Ken Dorsey. 
The other three quarters, <laughs> not so much. Turn the ball over a bunch of times. He had a good fourth quarter-ish, yeah. Ish, yeah. A lot of unintentional back shoulder throws by both of these quarterbacks in this football game. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, Ken Dorsey's second quarter might be... I'm not going to go through every quarterback who's played a national championship game since 2000. Ken Dorsey's second quarter, two picks and a fumble, strip sack yeah. fumble. Um, is that the worst from a quarterback in the modern era, modern-ish, nad, modern era? And by the way, the game is tied going into overtime at 17. Do you know how many yards Ohio State had to put together to score 17 points? How their, their combined scoring drive yardage what 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 it was i i don't know i'm gonna guess like 175 so ohio state scores two touchdowns and they kick a field goal a 44 yard field goal to get in position to score those points 17 yard drive 14 yard drive one yard drive wow my rudimentary math says it's a 32 yards of scoring yardage for Ohio State in this game. Good teams take advantage of opportunities. Ohio State took advantage of opportunities. Miami gifted them this game. And so if you are going to look back in this game and say that P.I. should never have been called and it was Miami was robbed. No, 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 no. Miami gave this game away a lot earlier than arguably a referee did. And so that's what made me furious because when Miami could move the ball, it was largely down the middle from Ken Dorsey and Kellen Winslow had an amazing game. And I think we'll, we'll talk about Ken, Kellen Winslow with uh, Bruce Feldman, who is there. And after we, we discussed this game ourselves for his for, sort of full context, but this game was taken from Miami by both Miami and the Ohio state defense. So that's why the, in retrospect, that PI changed everything. Even though I don't think it was P.I., I'm not on board with that that narrative. Okay. Well, you mentioned defense, and I am on board with that narrative. Both defenses were Incredible. very, very good. Yeah. Um, and you need look no further than what both of these teams did on the ground. So we talked about McGahee. We talked about Claret. McGahee had 3.4 yards per carry. Claret had just two yards per carry. Claret mm-hmm. had some big moments in this football game, which I'm going to bring up here yeah. just a little bit, but um, the defenses were very, very stout in this football game. Ken Dorsey was under pressure the entire game. Certainly as we got into overtime, Craig Krenzel was running for his life. Did you see the hits? There was a graphic. It was like the number of knockdowns and sacks and hits like Craig Krenzel at deep into the fourth quarter had been hit like 28 times. It was crazy over and it was a relentless pressure. And the fact that he was able to stand in there, he took a hit from Jonathan Vilma, which would have you posted Jonathan that on Twitter Vilma right? this game. I post that on Twitter. Jonathan Vilma lifted it like he lifted Craig Krenzel so high. It was like a child being lifted to dunk his or her first basketball <laughs> and driven into the ground. The fact that he was able to keep getting up, I just, I tip my audio hat to Craig Krenzel because that's, it's one of the guttiest performances from a quarterback on a stage this big. Miami leads after the first quarter, seven to nil. Mm -hmm. Ohio State comes back. They take advantage of some of those turnovers. Three turnovers again in the second quarter. They score 14 points. They lead 14 to seven going in at halftime. As the teams come out in the second half, uh, Miami draws a little bit closer after three quarters. They trail 17 to 14. 
Yeah, nice run from a game. Headed into the final stanza, and then Miami kicks a field goal to tie it up at 17 before we go into overtime. 17-17 after four quarters. Um, I watched this game and was incredibly bored by those first four quarters. <laughs> it's it's tough not to be. I mean, the, the fact that Ohio State's offense was set up to just give the ball to Maurice Claret without a lot of creativity and not trusting Craig Krenzel at one point. So that on the field goal drive where they got, they had one yard of offense and they kick a 44 yard field goal. Mike Nugent, by the way, come on yeah. NFL kicker yeah. for a long time. Third and 12 from the Miami 30. And you're thinking, okay, they just gotta, this is a, this is a big game. You gotta, you gotta get a big play here. Draw out of shotgun for Craig Krenzel yeah. for like six yards. It was just, you're right. It was a very boring because of those turnovers. Now, I will say, one of the Craig Krenzel interceptions was such a terrible decision that if you're not entertained by Craig Krenzel rolling out, pump faking like three (laughs) times, then launching it 40 yards down the field into double coverage, you don't like football. You also don't like football if you can't admire Sean Taylor then tipping that ball to himself as he's falling backwards. As he's falling backwards, yeah. Yeah, all-time college football safety. So at least we have some moments like that. You can appreciate the talent of the Ohio State defense and especially that secondary with Chris Gamble and Will Smith You know, looking unblockable up front for, for the Buckeyes. But you have to appreciate individual moments more than you can the back and forth and the talent and the creativity and the the punch counter punch element cuz just wasn't really there well and and this is part of what makes college football and the sport of football as a whole so unique in the world of sports yeah um the schemes were so different sure so different when was the last time you saw a power 5 team run a pro set offense and the quarterback wasn't in the shotgun. Like Ohio state did that multiple times in this football game. It was yeah. just a different era. We've seen it and from so, Stanford a little recently, but even they've evolved. Exactly. So in, in looking back at this game, like I remember all the scuttlebutt about how this is one of the greatest Miami teams of all time, even a mm-hmm. couple of years removed from the football game, not just Miami sure. teams, but teams in general with all the talent they had on the field and in watching back it's just impossible to compare eras it's impossible because schemes were different players were 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 conditioned differently you you almost can't compare this era of miami football to any other football team that we see in the modern age what we call the modern age now 17 years later because of how different the the schemes were it was just a totally different football game to watch back and um you know, I, I I guess I felt bad about the fact that I was bored watching it, but to a large extent, I was. There was a, an extreme lack of creativity compared to what we're used to seeing on Saturdays now. So I liked the defenses. Um, I'll come away with and say I like the defenses. And even though there is, you know, watching it with 2020 eyes isn't fair to this era at all. I, there was an element of Miami, and this goes back to all of the success they had over the, I guess, the 15 years leading up to this game. They were built around speed over size, I think, ahead of a lot of other teams. They had normal, you know, guys who were the size of safeties playing 
uh, linebacker. They had some guys who are typically the size of linebackers playing defensive end. They were, they were built around speed, and they looked like the more athletic. They looked like the more confident team. You watch you know, Roscoe Parrish, who's the number two receiver alongside Andre Johnson, or Kellen Winslow, at his size being as fast as he was. Miami building around speed was ahead of their time. Certainly, they have the recruiting advantages yeah. of being in South Florida, but speed over size was certainly something that you can say, okay, Miami is the, if not, or is one of, if not the pioneer about that notion. And so that I came away with that. where it's just like, it was a well-called defense and it wasn't just one dude making a tackle in the open field. There were so many fast dudes on that Miami defense that it was just, it was gang tackling all over the place. So I will say that has held up really well. Before we go any further, Dan, what else was going on on January 3rd, 2003, <laughs> not just in football, but like culturally, I'm glad you asked. Um, I had a radio show, KWVA, on the was Eugene, that Oregon Morningwood. That was Morningwood. Uh, that was okay. what it was called. Uh, more broadly speaking, because we mentioned Limp Biscuit, the top song in America was "Lose Yourself." Eminem. Oh, I listened to it before every show. Yeah, <laughs> it it comes through. Ty, uh, "Work It" from Missy, Misdemeanor Elliot, uh, Air Force Ones. It was a it was a decent enough era for extremely dumb pop songs. Underneath it all, no doubt. Um, movie wise, it was actually a good week. Lord of the Rings, two towers, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings guy, but I've seen it. It's fine. Catch me if you can is an all timer for me. That was number two, two weeks notice. If you're in a Sandy Bullock rom-coms and, uh, you got Harry Potter drumline tie. So it's actually, mm. there's a college football ish movie in the top 10 during the BCS drumline National was very underrated. I love that movie. It was a good movie. Petey Pablo. Great job. And we'll point out Joe millionaire premiered. I think really close to this game maybe like a week after on fox and that was a total I love train that ride. show yeah love that show evan marriott yeah watched every second of it loved it same so yeah All right. it was that was 2003 before we get into overtime yeah who was the best player on the field i'm gonna ask bruce when we have him on but who was who was the best player on the field because there's like two different ways that you can look at it you can look at it from a talent perspective, right? Who who just seemed like they had more talent? Like Kellen Winslow is a really, a really strong answer. Kellen Winslow was unguardable in this game. He rose to the occasion. Yeah. Um, so do you go with pure talent with Kellen Winslow or Andre Johnson or even Sean Taylor, who had what two interceptions? I think in this game. Or I, do you go? Do yeah. you go with um, someone like Claret, who was very good, very good, mm -hmm. but won moments, didn't stand out. With any kind of pyrotechnic offensive display, but one moments, Craig Krenzel, you know, seven of 21 passing, two picks, wasn't great, but led the team in rushing and won some moments in, in his own right. Which which direction do you go with that question? Uh, I, I'm going to go Vilma. I'm going to go the sort of heartbeat in the middle of that Miami defense. He was all over the place. And I mentioned Craig Krenzel taking the abuse that he did. There were like five shots from Vilma. So he's all over the place. They completely stopped Claret, who had been the heartbeat of the Ohio State offense. And just in terms of pure talent and what he was asked to do, what he was asked to do in, in coverage and largely just keeping Miami focused on stopping the run from Ohio State. To me, that was the dude in the game. Sean Taylor made plays. Uh, certainly the early on Will Smith made a ton of plays and kept a ton of pressure on the Miami offensive line, uh, which prevented the Canes from getting in any sort of rhythm. But I think it's Vilma looking back on the game. He, he was who really popped for me. From a talent perspective, the answers, I mean, you could list a number of people yeah. for Miami. Um, 
I mean, Chris Sean Gamble Taylor. too, but they just on offense, they they weren't doing much. Sean Taylor stood out to me. Vilma had an incredible game. Just yeah. was in the backfield the entire game. But um, I think I go Claret here. Interesting. Claret had the play of the game when he stripped an interception away. Yeah, that was in the ridiculous. second half in the third quarter. I want to say. Um, he had some big runs late, even though he didn't have the stats to really back it up. But like I said earlier, was bigger than I remembered. R- really seemed to just find a couple key moments late in that game where he made his presence felt. And he had a huge year that year. You know, Mar- Maurice Claret was a big name. Yeah. Um, but in, in this game in particular, the stats weren't there. The, the, the moments were. And those to me after watching back after all these years, um, th- those were really what stood out in a game that for, for again, four quarters was, I felt pretty boring. I totally forgot about that play. The, the Claret stripping, I think it was a Miami safety. I don't remember if it was Sean Taylor or not, but Craig Krenzel finally gets the ball downfield successfully. And then uh, the play, the next player to play couple plays after that throws a pick in the end zone brought out of the end zone 40 50 yards Maurice Claret is the one tackling the then ball carrier and strips him and gets the ball back for Ohio State that was just you're right it was probably the most impressive single play of the game so then we go to overtime the game is tied at 17 yeah and um that's when this game gets really interesting Mm -hmm. we had Ken Dorsey getting hurt in double overtime after a shot from Matt Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. We had a backup from Miami coming in to complete a pass to a fullback, no less. <laughs> but this game, I think, for a great number of us who go back and watch or at least remember it, are going to remember a very controversial pass interference call that went against Miami and Glenn Sharp. Was it or was it not pass interference? So as I, I mentioned earlier... I think it was. I think it was P.I. I think the ball and who was the DB? Glenn Sharp. Glenn Sharp. I think Sharp and the ball arrived at the same time. And I think it was it was far too close in that moment to definitively call. Then it was said, oh, it was holding. And it was, it was a late flag. I thought it was it was really poorly done. Um, I'm not big on haranguing about officials because a lot goes into a game beyond that just single play. I thought it was. But I don't think it means that we should look back and say Miami was jobbed. You turn the ball over five times, you have opportunities. It's, and so, it's tough to win when you turn the ball over five times. Yeah, and you it just probably is. don't deserve to win. The fact that they were still in the game at that point in time was totally. a bit of a miracle unto itself. But here's what happens. It's fourth and three. Craig Krenzel tries to throw a ball to Chris Gamble. It bounces off his hands. They call... Pass interference on Glenn Sharp. I don't think it was pass interference. Really, really tough call Yeah, in that spot in the game. But they get a fresh set of downs. And By the way, by the way, the Miami sideline, the, the flag came in so late and under the radar that the Miami oh, sideline the started pouring onto the field in that moment. Yeah, they rushed the field. Ohio State gets the ball. Fresh set of downs. Craig Krenzel runs in for one yard touchdown on third down. Yeah. Ties the game up at 24 in double overtime. They get the ball first in the next overtime period. They score a touchdown. Um, Miami does not. Correct. Maurice Claret scores a game winning touchdown. 
That's all she wrote. 31 to 24. The winning streak is over. Ohio State is your improbable national champion. And on top of all of that, we have a moment in the fourth quarter that completely leaves you to this day and me to this day in a little bit of horror. Unbelievable. And it's Willis McGahee. And in what seems like an ordinary run and an ordinary tackle, he sort of has his legs taken out from underneath him by an Ohio State player, is just wrecked. His knee is completely destroyed. It goes the wrong way. He tears three ligaments. ACL, MCL, and what? I don't even know what the other one is. LCL or PCL. LCL. All all of the acronyms in his knee. Yeah, gone. He is, I mean, for this, even though Andre Johnson is the clear top talent for this offense just what what he looks like compared to other people who play his position Willis McGahee is the one touching the ball and pacing this offense and is an incredible talent and one of I think the year before it was McGahee Portis and Frank Gore all on the same same backfield (laughs) this is just stupid these are cartoon rosters yeah it's comical and so McGahee's that dude. They bring in Jarrett Payton to, to come in at the end. But what that must do to a team emotionally, I'm not saying this is losing the game for Miami, but to be able to gather yourself, to drive down, to tie the game. I just, Ohio State weathering all of this on a neutral field is so impressive to me. They took yeah. advantage of opportunities, but man, what the emotion that must have been coursing through the sideline, the Miami sideline throughout this fourth quarter, throughout the game, I can't even imagine. They were they were very well coached, Ohio State was, to yeah. play defensively as well as they did and to hang around in the manner that they did was it was notable. And obviously they won the national championship here, 31 to 24. Big moment for the Buckeyes. They had been waiting for this forever. Jim Tressel finally got the job done. Um, a dramatic game in that it went to double overtime and they competed arguably against a much, much, much more talented competitor. Yeah. And Ohio State would eventually become, even under Jim Tressel, talent-wise, comparable. I don't know if they have that many NFL players, but they are a top, top talented team. They just weren't in this moment in that place. This was a, a scrappy upstart in as much as Ohio State can be a scrappy upstart, that they're surviving what they do during the regular season, and they just have to ride defense and field position and hope for the best. And it worked out. If this game is played 10 times, Miami's probably winning eight of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. I watched, I also watched this game. I mentioned the word furious. Both of these teams, when they would call play action passes, a lot of the time it worked. They just didn't do it all that often. No. Sitting there watching, I was like, just do what works more, please. Um, And they didn't. And it just, that second quarter for Miami, it was, it was just brutal. And, I'm it just not brutal. over it. I can't Tough believe it all happened so quickly. Two really yeah. bad passes and a strip sack. All right. Uh, scale one to ten. Yeah. One being uh, one of the worst games you've ever watched. Ten being <laughs> wow. the best. Where do you put this? I mean, the fact that we get double overtime and the fact that we have the, these moments and we're on the edge of our seats, that has to count for something, even though the first four quarters weren't, you know, a thrill ride. So, Seven I don't and a half, eight. Yeah, it's, I probably a little six point seven somewhere in there. Okay, seven point two. We need we need a scale to grade some of these games. We're gonna do more of them. I can't believe Miami lost to a doofus like Craig Krenzel. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe it, Ty. Yeah, they can't either. They can't either. All right, 
Um, we have droned on for far too long. Yeah. About what we felt and, and uh, our perspective watching this game back in 2003. Sure. As we've been doing with all of these games, we need the perspective of somebody who was in the stadium. All right. And finally, somebody who has spent far more time around the Miami program, around Miami football, measuring different levels of swag throughout the decades, our very good friend, Bruce Feldman. Were you at this game? Were you covering this game? Where were you in early January 2003? I was at the game, and I have a story that I didn't think about when you reached out to me until you started talking just now. Let's go. Um, So I am working at ESPN Magazine of New York City at the time, not at the time of the game, but you know, at the time at that point of my career. And uh, one of my colleagues at the magazine had put a a literary agent in touch with me and said, Hey, um, they know you, you're pretty connected in South Florida. And would you be interested in doing a Miami book? They're not sure what it really is, but a book about Miami football. Remember the year before Miami ran through college football, that great, you know, 2001 team. And there was, obviously a lot of heat around Miami and a lot of, you know, it is just an interesting program. And I said, you know what, let me think about it. Yes, I would do it. And so the game is going on. And I remember the overtime, like they let the, the print media be down on the field for like the last five minutes of the game. Once it gets down to five minutes left. Well, at that point I felt like I had been, you know, the game goes into overtime and or multiple overtimes. And I felt like I was, on you know on that side for an hour and a half and i just remembered warren Sapp was near me he had a he had like a white towel to just basically wipe the sweat off and i remember mm-hmm. you know being near him and our, our side of the field for some reason it was i was on the miami side was not very packed like every game i've gone to in the last 10 years that's a national title game you know, it's like there's almost nowhere to stand. Well, for some reason, I don't remember it being particularly crowded over there. Now, it might have been crowded on the Ohio State side, but not as, you know, it wasn't really at that point. And uh, so the game ends and it dawns on me, oh man, the book deal that I'm getting. And at that point, I don't, I don't, didn't know how much it was for, but I knew it was for more than $5,000. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew it was probably, you know, more than that, I was like, oh man, that's probably down the toilet. I was like, oh shit. And I, the thought in my head was like, I don't bet on sports. Like, I feel like I can't cover it, but not that maybe like a year, maybe five years earlier. Uh, I, I used to do some freelance writing for Maxim magazine. I don't even know mm-hmm. if Maxim still exists, by the way, but I would do some sports stuff for them. And I had done a story on, I think it was Lennox Lewis. And it, you know, it's like, you're waiting for the story to run. Well, I think it was Lennox, he, whoever it was got knocked out maybe by Hasim Lachman over like somewhere in the other half of the world. And I didn't find out till the next day. And I was like, huh, you know, whatever. And then it dawned on me, like, Oh man, they're not going to pay me the whatever, $750 for that story because now it can't run. And I was huh. like, it's like, I just bet on the fight and lost is basically yeah. how, like in my, in my you know, head at the time as like a person who's 30 years old. 
Well, with the Ohio State Miami game, it I never thought about the book until right as I'm watching everybody run onto the field the second time. I was the first time Miami thinks they won. The second time I'm like, Whoa, I probably just lost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thought. Um and it didn't like it it didn't like drop me to my knees or anything like that, but I was like, Whoa, this just affected me in a way that no other game is gonna affect me. So now, obviously, it didn't because I ended up writing the book, but uh, that was my my first thought, and it was it was a very um, it was a crazy game because of the officiating. And one of the things that I thought, I mean, that I thought about was like people remember the end of the game and the late part of the game. I don't think they remember like the first half of the game. It wasn't like the most riveting game. It wasn't no. like West Texas or or any of these other games we've seen probably in the last five years. It was different. Well, the thing, the thing that really came to mind for me, Bruce, and I went back and looked at Ohio State's season back in 2002, there were four games where they didn't score 20 points, which is almost unfathomable given where we're at in college football. Uh, most of these plays are under center. The guys are enormous, huge shoulder pads. It's just such a different game, and it wasn't all that long ago. No, I remember, you know, Craig Krenzel was, you know, you want to talk about like, you know, they just, ESPN just ran the Texas USC great game from, mm-hmm. you know, probably three years after this or two years yeah. after this. And it was obviously Liner and Bush and Vince Young and you had these great quarterbacks and everything. And Ken Dorsey was a really, really good quarterback at Miami. And, and, uh, but Krenzel, what I remembered most of that was like Craig Krenzel was like, I don't know if he was a 4-0 student, but it felt like he was, and he was a 4-0 student in like, maybe like molecular biology or something like he was he was going to be a doctor. He's going to be a scientist or whatever. And, and so he's very, you know, you knew he was very smart. I remember we had to do some, you know, the magazine had to do something as a preview. And I, and, um, I wrote about Chris Gamble, who was a great two-way player and just, he wasn't, um, Rod Woodson or he wasn't Charles Woodson, but he was really, really good. But it was mm-hmm. just like, except for Claret and Claret became quite a subplot around that. Um, they were, you know, it wasn't like these Ohio State teams where they're like dripping with like first round guys. I mean, they're good players, but it wasn't the same, you know, kind of Ohio State. I mean, credit to Jim Trussell. He got that thing rolling, but it was, uh, it was obviously a well-coached team. And, and I think you're right. It was like, they were one of those teams that just grinded people out. I mean, they had really good linebackers and everything. They had, you know, good defense and they were certainly well-coached, but um no, I think that was that was it. I mean, I think they they surprised a lot of people every step of the way. When you think about the game, do you think more about what the game ultimately meant in sort of the beginning of the end of high, high level success for Miami and for the end of Larry Coker's career as a, a power five head coach? Or do you think about the the sort of more micro in that the call at the end, the back and forth, the tension. What what do you think is the the bigger lasting legacy? Uh, you know, the legacy part was like that was kind of the beginning of the downfall at, of Miami and Larry Coker. And uh, I used to work with Eric Adelson, whose whose wife Andrea Adelson still works at ESPN.com. And Eric's brilliant guy, Harvard guy, everything he's worked at other places, and now he teaches journalism at UF. He had said to me. Um, that Larry Coker, this is dumbing it down, but he was like, Larry Coker is probably too nice of a guy and this thing is going to backslide. And I was fairly dismissive of it because I knew how well they were recruiting. And I just thought, eh, you know, he's got it going. All the players buy in. 
but but Eric was right. Like in the end, I mean, they mm-hmm. the chemistry kind of got sideways, and um, you know, it was like they still had talent. And like the next year, I remember one of the few guys who I remember really, you know, being comfortable talking after that game in the locker room was Jarrett Payton. You know, he'd mm-hmm. grown up in the spotlight. Obviously, his dad is a legend, Walter Payton, and everything. And and Jarrett ended up having they beat Florida State. It might have been the next year in the Orange Bowl, and Jarrett you know, had the basically the best game of his career. But he was one of the few people who could really come to terms with it. That you know, after the game, and I just think, you know, that program was in a funk, almost like they have been in a funk since then. I mean, it was just. Um, it really was a, a big change. You know, you had, um, the, you had some, some of the elements of certainly like, you know, Kellen Winslow was a step is his own, probably his own 30 for 30, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, things just kind of, you know, the next year where there was always drama, but there was, it was just like, you know, I, I felt like it was hard for them to to handle all that stuff. And they just, you know, it got, it became a very much the most three and out program in college football because you had so many guys go three and out. And they obviously, most of them try to be really good football players in the NFL. But I think that made it harder to sustain. And eventually it just kind of collapsed under its own weight. What do you remember about the month or so, if anything, going into the game that, you know, Ohio State surviving close calls against, you know, Michigan and Purdue and Illinois and whoever. And, and Miami, for the most part, they have a couple of close calls themselves, but they're the defending national champs. I believe they just completely bludgeoned Virginia Tech uh, the game before the national championship, but they dropped 50 or 60 points. Do you remember it being sort of a, a, a pretty lopsided expectation that this was going to be Miami rolling once again like they did the year before? Or... Were people keen on Ohio State's defense? Uh, you know, I think it's a hard read on that because, you know, like until, you know, it's a little like the aura of Mike Tyson, you know, until somebody gets wobbly, you know, you don't believe it's actually they're going to get knocked out. And right. as you said, I mean, this Ohio State team, uh, they were scuffling a lot of ways, you know, like they struggled at Wisconsin. They had their hands full of Penn State at home. Like you mentioned, the Purdue game. It wasn't like that was a great Purdue team. Mm-mm. I think they, they had to go to overtime against either, I think it was, um, I want to say it's Minnesota, but maybe it was Illinois. It was one of those teams that they had to go to overtime about, you know, and then they, they you know, survived against Michigan. So they were scuffling all along the way. I mean, what I remember right in the run-up was you had so much drama with Maurice Claret at that point. Right. Um, so, you know, that was its own subplot. I, I mean, I actually went, I don't know why I went, but I was at their first game that year. It was against Texas Tech. It's Claret's first game. It's at Ohio State. And Cliff was the was Texas Tech's quarterback. And he was a, I don't know if I would say he was a fringe Heisman candidate. He was definitely like on the Heisman radar. Yeah, he led the nation in passing that year. Yeah, and Claret went off in that game. And I didn't go off. I want to say, like, I had a guy who now I would say is a buddy of mine who was on the Ohio State staff, and he worked with special teams. He was a linebacker who worked with special teams. And he was talking about how, like, how Claret was like their best special teams player. And then we're talking about a true freshman, just like a great all-around football player. And I remember that the the shoe was, by the end of that, was chanting Mo Reese, Mo, you know, like the whole place. And the other thing I would remember was 
hearing the refs like the next morning, I was somewhere where there was, there was some officials who were flying out like that morning, but I think I was at the hotel where they were having breakfast. And they were like, I've never seen a quarterback take a pounding like that guy did. And he still kept getting up. Well, that was cool. Yeah. You know, so that was the beginning of it. And they went on this ride. And, um, you know, it's, it, it feels like I said, it, it, for the people who are, who are way young on, on listening to your podcast, who maybe don't remember 2002, like this wasn't the Ohio state, you know, now, like it's like the urban Meyer infused Ohio state where they're gobbling up five-star guys and, and essentially Clemson and Alabama esque from a talent level. I mean, they had, they definitely had some, but they didn't have it. Like what this, at least that's my recollection. I just, you know, it was like Miami was the one who had ridiculous talent and Ohio state had a lot of really good players. They were just a really good team. But, you know, as we're talking, I'm going through, you know, Chris, Chris Campbell was a stud. Michael Jenkins was, was really good. But then you looked at like the offensive line. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of going through it. Nick Mangold, I remember being a really good player. Um, but beyond that, it was, you know, like Will Smith was obviously a good NFL player. Uh, I remember Mike Doss and Donnie Nick, you were good safeties. And, but it wasn't, you know, it just to me wasn't like kind of what we were, what we've become used to with, you know, with that group, I, you know, just going back now, they didn't even have a guy who went in the first round after that. So, um, you know, credit to Jim Trestle. It was a hell of a coaching job. Yeah. Bruce, thinking back to this game, we already heard the story about you perhaps nearly losing money, but beyond that, what are some things we should know about this Miami team or just about this game being so you were there that we wouldn't be able to pick up just from being fans in 2002 or watching the broadcast that night? I think what, what really stood out to me was the expectation that that group had had because what was different about them, I feel like, and again, it's been a while, but um, the group in 2001 had all been on the ride. Like, you know, I just did this story for The Athletic on like my favorite player that I've ever been around, and it's Ed Reed. I mean, he just had a charisma and a glow that was different. Well, when Ed Reed got to Miami, and he wasn't a big recruit, they beat Tulane to get him. It wasn't like he was, you know, uh, we're going to beat the whole SEC to get him out of Louisiana. But here's the thing. When Ed Reed was a freshman, they won five games. They were five and six. They were digging out of the sanctions. You know, he came in in half a recruiting class, right? So the guys on that 2001 team, most of them were guys who had been like hardened through, they, they were battling early on, you know, in their careers, they were really bad. They got embarrassed by Florida state. That was that team, the 2002 group. Now there were still some guys who had, you know, Dorsey was still there, but for the most part, um, I don't think the nucleus of that group had really been, had come through all the crap and had to watch it get built back up. Like, this was kind of a, the guys who came, who, and I'm not saying they didn't know what it took, but they were there when, um, you know, it had already been rolling. So I'm not sure that they, they saw quite that side of it. So they maybe had a different perspective and a different shape on it. And to me, I think that made it a little different for the mindset of the place. Thinking back on that game, and I know it's been a while, but who was the best player on the field 
from your vantage point? I really remembered Winslow being the best player on the field. Like, you know, again, the guy I had mentioned before who coached at Ohio State, he was like, we didn't have any answers for him. Like, he was unstoppable. And I think that was a big, um, that was a big thing for, I mean, that was kind of a coming out party for him on a national stage. I think he had 11 catches. I mean, he was just, and that those were good players. Like, like Ohio State had two really good experienced safeties. They had a bunch of linebackers who were, who were good, solid players. And he was just a mismatch for them, you know? And um, at least on the field that night, that's why I remember being the best player on the field. He was just, they couldn't do anything with him. If, if Miami could protect Ken Dorsey, he was going to Kellen Winslow and they were moving the ball. What was your reaction to the McGahee injury? I know what it was like watching from home, but from your vantage point, what was, what was that perspective? It was later than probably what you guys saw because, you know, when you're watching a game or a press box, you're not seeing the replay. You didn't see, you know, how, how gruesome that was. You know, you see it and it's just like, oh my God, that's, not quite what the Theismann injury was, but it felt like it was in that realm kind of thing where it's bone snapping. You're just like, and then there's a part of it, part of the situation where you're thinking, man, this is, this guy's going to the NFL to have this great career. And fortunately for him, I mean, you know, with technology and, and I guess medical science the way it is, he still had a really good career. I mean, it wasn't like Miami had a, had a great running back probably 15 years earlier, Melvin Bratton who also had a devastating injury in his final game. And it derailed Melvin's career pretty much entirely, where at least McGahee's it didn't. So, you, you know, it didn't take long to think about the ramifications of that for him. And I think, you know, it was different then because whatever, it's 17 years ago, it also wasn't at that stage where you'd have guys after that saying, all right, I'm going to sit out a bowl game. And this is a national title game, but I'm sure the you know, that was a, that was a sobering play to say the least. And, um, you know, when you said what plays stand out, I mean, that was the first one in my head between that and the pass interference, you know, controversy. Those are the two things that stood out the most individually from that game. Was it pass interference? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like you watch that so many times. I mean, that's not an HD game, by the way, right? Correct. I don't know. I remember talking to Mark Stoops after the game. He was Miami's secondary coach. Um, and it was just, there was so much controversy around that. I think because it was so delayed. And, um, you know, and it's just like, I, look, I don't think that was, obviously Ohio State won the game. And I think you could ask any Ohio State fan, they could probably point out six different plays that they felt like should have you know, could have gone the other way, you know, officiating wise. So I don't think that's ever a good situation for anybody. It's really not a good situation for, you know, I still remember the, the name of the official and it's I'm sure it wasn't, you know, good for him and his family. And I think at least, you know, it's probably even worse in this day and age. So, um, you know, it's just that game had, had, a, had so much drama around it. And I think certainly that was part of it because of the lag and, you know, they're celebrating and then they're not. And then also they say, we better get ourselves back up again. And Miami really couldn't do it. Do you think a Jim Trestle coach team in 2020, which obviously the way he coached, the way he recruited, the way Ohio State played football evolved 
over his his tenure there and until well, about a decade later. Do you think that sort of blueprint could work now in playing as conservatively but intelligently and sort of focusing on defense and ball control? Or are we too far past? Are we too evolved college football wise with big wide open offenses and the sort of more leaning on creativity on offense is, is, is trestle ball. <laughs> is it, is it, uh, is it, is it 2020 compatible? I think it is. I mean, if you get the right players for it, um, I, I definitely think it is. I mean, look, Mark Antonio did a lot of the stuff like Jim Trestle did and had a lot of success a decade later. Now he didn't have success the last couple of years. And was the defensive coordinator in this game for Ohio State. He was, right? And so there was a lot of that blueprint there. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of people now who are coaches who are really using similar models to that. And, you know, it's hard to find, I mean right now a program because you see what LSU, you see what Alabama places that had been, you know, winning with just defense and let's not screw it up for the offense kind of stuff. I think the better of Northwestern, Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern have sort of gone with that model. They have, but again, I think, I guess I was talking about like, could they compete for national championships? Like like Pat Fitzgerald's a terrific coach, but they're not competing for national championships there. You know, I'm just thinking like, in terms of, you know, it's like Kyle Whittingham has a really physical team. Mm. They're very well coached. Um, but I feel like they're a little more aggressive on offense, yeah. you know, with some of the stuff they do, certainly some of the stuff they did last year, you know, with, when Andy Ludwig went back there. Um, but I, you know, it's just thinking off the top of my head, it's hard to find somebody who has that, who has that, but, I mean, that guy was a really, really good. His teams were really well coached, and they recruited well. And certainly, it helped that he's at Ohio State, where you can get a lot of players because you know you have a big brand school and a lot to sell. So I get that part of it. And with Miami going the direction that they did, still succeeding, and they they make the move to the ACC, and then ultimately they have the down year, and Larry Coker's replaced. You made an allusion to him being probably too nice for that job. What did Miami need? What, you know, what is it? Is it just Butch Davis? Is it just, you know, that big personality to keep everything, you know, to keep the fire under the the feet of everybody in the locker room? Or as we've seen in a lot of places that there's just sometimes a shelf life to excellence. I think it's really who's, who's in charge, how well, you know, Butch Davis was a great evaluator of talent. He learned under Jimmy Johnson. He, I mean, you look at his track record, his track record for, evaluating stacks up with anybody who's coached college football in the last 25 years when that eventually left, then I think it was, you had a, a core group of guys. Ed Reed was certainly the, the, the main guy who held people accountable and that kind of fed into the locker room. Once that got away from them, it started to implode. And I mean, I think if, and I, it's too soon to tell if Manny Diaz will be that guy. Um, I think Manny's really smart. I don't know how all the pieces will come together. Um, you know, it's not like there's less talent around them in South Florida, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, I think chemistry's a tricky thing with how it, you know, fits. I mean, it wasn't that long ago Florida State was on top of the college football world. And now it feels like a long time ago, you know, because once it starts to kind of get a little bit off, it's almost like 
you know, you're starting to run uphill and, you know, you and I, you guys all, we all remember when USC was, was everything. And now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, they still can get players, but it's just the balance gets off. And so, um, it's, 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 I don't think it's as black and white a question as, as like a lot sure. of us would want to say, and it, it definitely doesn't fit on a tweet, you know, that kind of thing. Final question. Now, when you look back at this game, do you look at it as a, you know, do you have this overtime, double overtime game? You have the back and forth. You have a comeback from Miami, despite, I think they turned the ball over five times. Was this a great game or was this just a close game? I think it was both. I mean, it was a great okay. game because it had drama. It had, you know, a historic, I mean, I guess any national title game is going to have a historic component, you know, component to it. I mean, would you ask me if it was one of the top five games, national title games? I, I feel like I've covered, I would probably say not. I mean, I would, I would put the, to me, the Texas USC game is a clear number one, but then I would look at like the drama around the Alabama Georgia game was a great game. Alabama and Clemson had a great game. Um, I feel like there's been other ones that even Florida state and Auburn, you know, had plenty of drama in there. The way it came down to the last play. Um, there's been, there's just, there's been a lot of great games. I think what was, what that game had beyond just the controversial call, it had a great, great team getting knocked off by a, a, um, story program that was on its way back. Right. So, right. you know, if like Miami wasn't on the 34 game win streak, if Miami was, was a team, like you look at Alabama as great as they've been, they've had, you know, so many seasons where they've won national titles or played for them with one loss. I mean, they're still probably the best team in the country that year, but there there's an element of there's, there's not the element of invincibility. Miami at 34 in a row, USC same. you know, that's what I think adds ratchets up the, the, the intrigue around those games because of that. Bruce Feldman, thank you very much for your time and everybody listening, go by hey, I have the... a question for you oh, before we go. No, and the floor I'm, is yours. I've sick myself now that I'm now that I heard you shilling for me, but yeah. Um, I still will. Okay. So our our podcast, the Audible today, we got a question about somebody referenced, hey, my favorite episode was when Bruce asked Stu if he'd smoked weed in, in college. Mm. Stu was in a Stu was in a it was in a band. I was going to say rock band. I would assume it's something like that, but I never heard any of their music. <laughs> and he said he never had. What? I had said to him, when this thing is all over, we get it all clear. I think the first episode back, Stu's got to Stu's got to blaze it up and and do the audible that way. I Good will, idea, bad idea. I will fly to Northern California and put on a hazmat suit. <laughs> And personally produce the episode. <laughs> I will make sure record gets hit. I will make sure Stu is in a safe place. I think it's a fantastic idea. We may copy the idea. Yeah, we might. I think we might have maybe, to. Maybe <laughs> maybe we implore all relevant college football podcasters to to celebrate in such a way when we get the all clear. Like it's like the it's not him going on fine bomb. We have an editor. If Stu like drifts down the road of talking about his old mailbag crushes and it gets sure. a little weird. Yeah. We can edit that out. I mean, we can talk about stuartmandel.com and then edit it out. Everybody, if if you know, you know. <laughs> um, I think it's a terrific idea. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad I'm not alone on that front. I'm also I'm also skeptical that he's telling the truth. I don't. You know what? I don't, uh, 
you can say a lot of things about Stu. I find him to be very honest. Okay. I don't, I, I don't think he would make that up. I don't even know why he would claim it. It's not like he's ever going to run for office. Yeah, he's not joining the FBI. He's not running for office. He's, he's a college football writer. And I think it would give him a little more cred. And I'm dying to hear what he would have to say if his mind was a little bit altered. Yeah, I, I would be fascinated to see that version of Stu. I have seen the lit version of Stu. There was a right. window where it was different. And uh, <laughs> the one. The what does this mean? It's not for this podcast. It's going to oh. have to be offline. Was Stu, okay, you don't have to say yes or no. Was Stu implicated in the Gold Club trial? <laughs> <laughs> no, and this doesn't have anything to do with John Junker or the Fiesta. Oh, that's a shame. Okay. Uh, well, then that's a great tease. You should subscribe to the Audible. You should subscribe to the Solid Verbal. Uh, Bruce and Stu are churning out episodes. They're terrific, and they've been doing it for a long time now. And uh, I, I don't know if Trader Joe's is still a sponsor, but Bruce likes the orange chicken. Is still a sponsor. Um, and I would highly recommend, what are the uh, the sweet potato tortilla chips are a must. Oh, those are very good. Go look on Amazon for, first of all, Kane Mutiny is the name of Bruce's Miami book that he talked about. Uh, look for the QB, look for Meat Market, in which he follows Ed Orgeron around and had no idea that Coach O would eventually become a national champion head coach. Um, and, you know, find Bruce everywhere. You know where to find Bruce. Just Google Bruce Feldman. You'll find him. Bruce, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Always good to hear your guys' voices, especially now. Appreciate it. All right, Dan, there you go. Bruce Feldman from The Athletic Fox Sports. Please do subscribe to the show he does with Stuart Mandel, our good friend, The Audible, another college football podcast. We're all kind of in this big universe together, trying to figure out what to talk about right now in the midst of a global pandemic, but we're doing our best. I mean, are we going to keep doing this? Do you want to keep doing these games? It's been fun. Yes. So we need to come up with, we need people to give us suggestions for the next game. We would like, it doesn't have to be a championship game. Obviously we did the Bush push game, just a big game. I think we're giving preference to it being pre solid verbal era. So pre 2008, but if there's something weird and fun, we are happy to do any game. Just give us a suggestion and pay attention to Twitter or Instagram in which we will tell you which game to go rewatch. So you can follow along as you listen to the show. We will do our best to do that. Um, by the way, as a postscript tie, some some really weird after the <laughs> after the what is it on the Bachelor after the rose or something like that after the fi- after the final rose yeah after the final something like that. So Larry Coker's fired um, a few years later as you know Miami joins the ACC and it's clear that they succeeded with Butch Davis's players and he couldn't hold it together even recruiting pretty well. Jim Trestle just goes on a tremendous run with as many problems as you know some people have with trestle ball and sort of being conservative on offense what he does in columbus is incredible and the way it ends is also very strange with covering up tattoos and terrell Pryor and everything like that it worked out fine for ohio state and now he's the president of youngstown state where he used to coach so it don't cry for jim trestle it ended weirdly but he had just a tremendous run there larry coker went on to eventually coach utsa and was not good it was not good no. for UTSA. Um, you know, largely what happened to NFL players. We've mentioned Will Smith's name. He dies in just just a wild fashion. It's just tragic for everybody involved. 
um, Maurice Claret, and the, he'll, he has that single year. He sues the NFL. He's kicked off of, he's hooked out of Ohio State, the institution. He sues the NFL to be drafted, and it's accepted, and then it's overturned. And so there's a whole drama with he ends up incarcerated. Uh, Ken Dorsey's a coach in the NFL. Craig Krenzel, I'm sure, is a wildly successful doctor somewhere. Um, Ohio State was fine, and Miami wasn't <laughs> in, the, in the long term. And they haven't been since they've had, you know, they had the year with Mark Richt, but otherwise, you know, Randy Shannon replaces Larry Coker. And then you have Al Golden and Mark Richt. And it just they haven't been able to, to find that, it, that swaggy elixir tie. They just have swaggy elixir seems like but a good way to sign off tonight. Jim Tressel nine and one against Michigan. So that worked out well. It's undeniable that Ohio State, and that was the beginning of something incredibly special for the Buckeyes and beginning of the end of something incredibly special for the Canes. All right. Well, as Dan said, let us know what game you want us to do next. Solidverbal at gmail.com is the email address. You can also follow along with us on social media. We would love to hear from you about what game we should do next. Yeah. We are planning to do a bunch. It's been a lot of fun going back into the archives of college football to watch some of these great football games. So one more time, solidverbal at gmail.com. Dan, uh, fun show. We appreciate our good friend Bruce Feldman stopping on by. I think that's all I have. It was fun to go back and watch this game again. Oh, I should point out that uh, Frank Abagnale did serve time, the main character, and catch me if you can. But now yes. he has been helping, I think, the FBI with uh, with counterfeit and and sort of prosecute those sort of counterfeit, uh, you know, checks and everything like that. And um, they were able to destroy the ring eventually. They wrote a giant bird on Middle Earth, yep. and they just sort of dumped it in Dropped the volcano, it into Mount I want to say. Yeah, Mount Doom. So yep. they defeated Sauron. And I think everything has worked out. J-Lo got married to or is with Alex Rodriguez. Ty, everything's great. Everything's great, except for the fact that we've got a global pandemic. We hope everyone out there is other than that staying safe and washing their hands and, hey, you know, enjoying the time at home with your family. Weird times, but we'll get through it together. We will be back in one week's time to talk about another ancient game from college football history can't wait in the meantime for that guy over there my good friend dan rubenstein for myself ty hildebrand thank you so much for tuning in we will talk to you all soon in the meantime stay solid peace peace